Microphones and recorders are my least favorite devices, but we're doing this for the good of all the people who could not be here, especially this year when sadly the illness and other emergency that made it that a lot of people couldn't be here at the last minute. So we do our best to record everything that's taking place here so that it can be made available to all of them. And again, I hope you're all enjoying yourselves. This is this is about as big as we can get. It looks like so. Very grateful. Been been fun to work with the staff here at the at the Jefferson Street Inn. So it's been a, it's been a good plan, I think, for for the future. We will we'll have to see what we do. I feel a little bit like uh, I know my name is Aaron, but really I feel more like a Moses. And just have this, this large troop of of people. We're trying to find a permanent home for you ever since the lockdown didn't work out to have Mundelein anymore, and I don't know that it ever will now. No, even, even if it became easier to be there, you're just too big, and we have to see. So pray, pray that we find a retreat center. It's a very important intention. So please, please do keep praying for that. If you ever have ideas, don't hesitate to let me know or let Ken and Rico know, but uh, we certainly keep praying for that intention one day. Hopefully we'll find a permanent home for, for our society. With that, let's just say a little prayer together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, for the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and the hour of our death. Amen. O Mary, without sin. Pray for us without O Mary, conceive without sin. Pray for us without recourse to thee. O Mary, conceive without sin. Pray for us without recourse to thee. Saint Benedict. Pray for us. Saint Thomas Aquinas. Pray for us. Saint Francis de Sales. Pray for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Try the standing so that I can talk to all of you. Can everyone hear me all right? Yes. Fine, very good. Audible for everyone, very good. <laughs> so, you all know why I'm here by now, but I have to do here is, I'm here to do a sound check for the speaker who's coming after me. <laughs> no, I, I, do, I do hope that the words that I had in mind for you will actually serve as a fitting introduction for what His Eminence has to offer you today. That is, I, it's the fruit of conversations I've had other retreats that I've preached this year, uh, to the Oblates, uh, 
other conferences I've given to the Society of the Sacred Heart in different parts of the United States, in my conversations with our own superiors, about the importance of something that our, our prior general, Monsignor Bach, has emphasized again and again over the years, but becomes so acute today, is that we hear that again and again, Monsignor Bach will say, in so many talks, he would say, believe in the divinity of the church. And that now more than ever, it is very urgent that we cultivate our love for the church. It really could be the most serious error of our time not to have a love for Holy Mother Church or to view her very much in the wrong way. In some of the apostolates this year, I've had the opportunity to speak to you about a very specific topic. I won't revisit it in full today. And that topic was the magisterium of the church. And how do we understand the magisterium of the church? I used a, a phrase which I suppose works as, a, as an analogy to some degree to refer to the magisterium as the rubrics of revelation. And that it is just as in the Holy Mass and the liturgy, we have rubrics which aren't simply an instruction book right? rubrics don't as our, our master of ceremonies in the United States, Canon Avis likes to say they, the rubrics don't tell you what to do they tell you what has always been done right? it's an important distinction and that, that indeed is somewhat the role of the magisterium the magisterium brings us all that God has revealed to us, all that has come to us through Christ our Lord has been revealed comes to us through the magisterium of the church with the church teaching us and it is very important then to have a good concept of this role of the teaching church so that we do not fall into these extremes which are so common today, which on the one hand is to view uh, every pronouncement made by any member of the hierarchy as a, as a, a divine oracle, which must be accepted word for, absolutely down to the tiniest detail. Uh, and on the other hand, to take the tact that, well, no, it's very limited when infallibility is invoked by, by the Pope, or even by a council, and therefore, whenever that infallibility is not invoked, we simply don't have to pay attention. Right? So that, those are the two extremes, and where do we find the teaching of the church? Well, we find that, yes, there are two things. There is that extraordinary, there's that solemn magisterium, which is invoked very rarely when a, a papal definition is made or when a council defines something solemnly. That does happen rarely. However, the ordinary magisterium is indeed infallible as well. However, the manner in which it is presented is not the same. The ordinary magisterium is, as I've mentioned to you a few times, it is simply, as St. Vincent of the Hans would say, it is simply what the church has believed and taught always everywhere and has been believed by everyone. So when we look at what is the ordinary magisterium, we look and see how the, a statement that is made today by, a pope, by the pope or the bishops, we see, well, how does this line up with what has been said for 2,000 years? then we find, yes, well, here the constant teaching of the church has been repeated, and therefore cer that certainly that is infallible. It's not in the same way as it is when a solemn definition is made, because then the Pope is alerting us, or a council is alerting us, to something that is going to be closed now to debate, something that has been openly discussed before, but now will be precisely defined. When it comes to the ordinary magisterium, it is simply repeating what has always been taught by the church, but that most certainly is also infallible. But this, the reason why I thought it was so important to talk about that this year is because we're at the point where we seem no longer to view the church, 
in so many places by so many people, it seems no longer to be viewed truly as the type of body that it is. It's been now quite some time, it's been a good 80 years since the promulgation of a very important encyclical, which I invite all of you to read or reread in the coming year, that is Mr. Corpus Christi of Pope Pius XII, this beautiful encyclical about the church, all that we owe to the church, the love that we have for the church, how the church is essential to our spiritual life. But in speaking about this, that Holy Pontiff, speaking about the mystical body of Christ, distinguishes it from other types of bodies. Now, of course, we all know that when we say that the church is the mystical body of Christ, well, that's not the same as saying that it's the actual physical body of Christ, that the divine person, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh within. That's his physical body, and that's like our physical bodies, because became true man. The members of the body, yes, they're governed by a head in our physical body, but the, in, the parts of the body independently don't do anything. Uh, so it's not quite the same as the body we're talking about here, because here certainly this body that we have that's called the church is made up of members which do have their own personality, they're individuals, they have free will, so it's not quite the same as simply a physical body. However, another mistake, which I fear happens very often today, is to view the church as nothing more than a moral body. That is to say that the church is, if the church is only a moral body, it's really nothing more than a sort of political party. Uh, that we easily view the church that way, and well, we know that there have been conferences, other gatherings in, in recent years that have, I fear have talked in that way about the church, even talking about how the, the need to make the church Catholic again, right? the need to make, to save the church. That's right. Well, as I reminded you last night, our, our founders were taught by Cardinal Siri, who told them always that we do not save the church, the church saves us. So the church is not simply a human organization with a human foundation. It is not something that we're out to better, to, to save. As individual members of the church, we have a duty to cooperate with grace. We have a duty to be good, humble, and faithful children of Holy Mother Church. But it is not our job to save the church. And therefore, we cannot simply view, despite what may happen, despite the scandals that may exist in our time, as they have existed in all times, to view the church simply as a moral body. For the essential difference is this, is that any human organization, any moral body, whatever good it may do here and now, does not have that animating principle which the mystical body of Christ does, and that it has Christ at its head. A moral body could never be more than something on the natural plane, whereas the mystical body of Christ is essentially supernatural. We know this especially when we consider that epistle which is so dear to our hearts because it is where we derive our motto, the epistle to the Ephesians. And that is where we first hear in sacred scripture about the marks of the church. It is in the epistle to the Ephesians that we learn from St. Paul that the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And especially in that chapter where we have our motto, furthering the truth and charity, in that fourth chapter is where we hear especially about the unity of the church. But all four marks 
are there to be found in that epistle to the Ephesians. It is this church with, that is one holy Catholic and apostolic which has Christ as its head. In that admirable article of the Summa, question 8 of the third part, where we speak about Christ as true God and true man, St. Thomas takes the time in a whole question there to speak about this mystical body of Christ, that Christ has grace not only as a man, but also in as much as he is the head of the church. And that is where he goes on to explain, St. Thomas, that all men belong in some way to this mystical body of Christ. Certainly, he says, there are some who belong to this mystical body only potentially, because they have not been baptized. This is a point that Pius XII insists upon also in, in his encyclical. Those who are not yet baptized are only potential members of the mystical body of Christ. Or those who are baptized certainly belong to this mystical body by faith. We even find that this is the one time we find St. Thomas employed the term faith alone. He says, yes, there is such a thing as, as belonging to Christ by faith alone. It would be the case of someone in the state of mortal sin. Right? So faith alone has, does have a meaning there in Catholic theology. To belong to Christ by faith alone means that certainly you have the faith, so you are baptized and you do adhere to the tenets of the Catholic faith. However, you are not in the state of grace because you have sinned. Maybe you have been sinned against faith, but you have committed other grave sins, and therefore you do not have charity in your soul. So you, do, you belong to Christ by faith alone, but not by charity. However, then there are those who do belong to Christ by charity. Those are all those who are here on earth in the church militant in the state of grace. All those who are, who are such belong to Christ by faith, hope, and charity. Then there are those who are confirmed in their grace, who then belong to Christ in the church suffering. They can no longer fall away from grace, so they are confirmed in their charity, but they do not yet see God in the face. So those are all those who are then in the church suffering. And then finally he says there are those who belong to Christ not only by faith and not only by charity, but even by glory. And those are all those who have been confirmed forever now in grace and now see God face to face. And those are all the members of the church triumphant. I would take a moment to tie this teaching of St. Thomas to another teaching of his when he speaks about the relation of all of the sacraments of the church. And this brings us more to our point today about the spiritual life and how, this, how the church is important for your spiritual life, is that St. Thomas explains to us why the Eucharist, the Blessed Eucharist, is the greatest of all the sacraments and the other six revolve around it. He speaks about this, first of all, in terms of the actual true of the true body of Christ. He says, baptism, yes, by all means, brings us the remission of sin and makes us heirs to heaven. But first of all, baptism grants upon our soul a character. It enables us to offer public worship, which first of all means for us then to take part in the celebration of the Eucharist. So that is the greatest thing here on earth that comes from our baptism. It allows us to receive the other sacraments, but especially the Eucharist. Then there is the sacrament of confirmation. So this second character on our soul, and this, in fact, second level of participation in the priesthood of Christ, which is always one with the Eucharist, 
It enables us, it says, to defend our faith in the Eucharist, in the true body of Christ. Also gives us the courage to approach the Eucharist if we are tempted to discouragement or despair, and the courage as well to stay away from the Eucharist when we know we must go to confession first, and we would be tempted by human respect to, to approach the Eucharist. Then there is the sacrament of penance, which enables us to return to the Eucharist if we have fallen away by sin. The same is true of extreme unction, which grants forgiveness of sins when we are too sick to be able to make a good confession, and then restores us to health so that we can continue receiving the Eucharist. Then there is holy orders, without which we would not have the Eucharist, but we would not have ministers to celebrate and confect the Eucharist. But then furthermore, St. Thomas makes the point that there is also matrimony. Without matrimony, we also would not have any relation to the Eucharist because if it were not for matrimony, we would not have anyone to receive the Eucharist. We would not have any children being brought into the world. Without this cooperation with God's work of creation, we would not have any recipients of the Holy Eucharist. All of these things, though, we think about them in, return, in relation to the true body. We cannot separate this teaching from their relation to the mystical body and the church. So when we receive the sacraments, which is the most important part of our daily life as Catholics, receiving the sacraments with fervor, this can never be something that could be reduced to the level of a purely private prayer. And indeed, Pius XII makes the point in that encyclical that even private prayer, in a way, cannot ever be called private, because as long as you have the baptismal character on your soul, and even more so with confirmation, your worship of God is always in some way inherently public, certainly most of all when you take part in the sacred liturgy, for that comes to us from the church. But even in your private prayers, you do not somehow cease to be a member of the mystical body of Christ when you go off to pray privately, far from it. Whenever you pray, and certainly as members of the society, even though you say, well, here I'm saying the litany of St. Francis de Sales, and technically maybe that's not uh, officially part of the liturgy, so that's just a private prayer. Well, no, when you do that, certainly you're doing that as a member of your third order, and so in your part of Holy Mother Church, you are most certainly taking part, and you are praying in union with all other members. And so this is true also of everything we've said about the Eucharist right now. Everything we've said about the true body of Christ still relates then to the mystical body of Christ. When we receive that first baptismal character, that first eternal character on our soul, it deputes us to public worship. It deputes us to worshiping in union with all the members of Christ. Confirmation then is an even higher level of participation in that public worship. And then the highest level, of course, is holy orders with all the minor and major orders. In that sense, we can always reply to Protestants who talk about the priesthood of all believers. In, so many, as in this instance, as in so many instances, we can say, yes, well, what you say is true. It's simply not the whole truth. Yes, so there, is, there is such a thing as a priesthood of all believers by baptism. We believe even more so by confirmation. However, only certain men are called to that highest level of participation through the sacrament of holy orders. And even then, when we look at ones like extreme unction, we see that indeed by being restored to health, most certainly is we think of it being for our own spiritual and perhaps physical health if God decides to heal us physically through extreme unction. But even in that case, it is still related to this idea of public worship so that we can, as Christians, return to our greatest duty here on earth, which is that of worshiping God. We have a beautiful reference to this in, in 
description of the Eucharist itself, one of the very earliest ones, dating from the very first century, describing the celebration of the liturgy in that first century, already in the time, still in the time of the apostles, in the Didache, where it speaks about the particles that have been made to form the bread that will be consecrated and become the body of Christ, and how this massing together of particles is like drawing all people from all corners of the earth in order to render to God true worship. We see this as well even in the case of things that are like the sacramentals and indeed all the ceremonies of the church. Even the beautiful ceremonies we witnessed this morning, what a great grace to be able to celebrate this vigil of Pentecost together. And in this case too, we see that all of these ceremonies are in fact sacramentals, which means that in the case of something as simple as holy water, something we're so accustomed to using, that this too somehow involves us with the entire mystical body of Christ. The difference between, just to review that, hopefully it's fairly fresh in your mind, but the difference between a sacrament and a sacramental is that sacraments, following the good theology of St. Thomas, which has been enshrined by Holy Mother Church and solemnly defined, the sacraments confer grace by the very, in virtue of the very work being performed, ex opere operato. That is, they confer grace simply by the fact that they are validly administered, as long as no obstacle is placed in their way. So it doesn't depend in any way on the holiness of the minister who is offering them. That is not the case with sacramentals. Sacramentals do not confer grace in that way, but they most certainly still confer grace. And the difference then with them and, and merely private prayer is that with sacramentals, it is still something physical, it's still something visible that's being used. However, you benefit when using sacramentals not only from your own prayers and your own devotion, but also from the prayers of the entire church. And so many sacraments now, there are so many sacramentals now, not only holy water, but even just the use of any blessed rosary, other objects of the sort, medals, all these things bring with us not only, yes, they do depend on our own personal devotion, but also very much on the prayers of the entire church who prays with us when we make use of these things. All of this goes to underline the importance for our own spiritual life of having a deep and profound love for Holy Mother Church. I have spoken at another conference too about the doctrine of no salvation outside the church. And it's important that we, we always distinguish this as Holy Mother Church does from, we do not teach for instance that outside of the church there is no grace. We do not say that. After all, there must be grace at work outside of the church or no one would ever be brought into the church. Therefore, it's certainly grace is at work. Actual grace is pushing people at every moment closer and closer to the church. That is the case of all those who are potential members of the mystical body of Christ. For those who are potential members of that mystical body, actual grace is always at work, moving them closer and closer to the church. So we do not teach that outside of the church there is no grace, but for, on the other hand, we do say that there is no salvation outside of the church. And furthermore, we could say that without the church, it is not even possible to lead what we are all striving to do, which is to lead the devout life. To lead a devout life, we cannot possibly suppose that, that is something that could take place without the church, our mother. It's church, our mother, who intercedes for us, who gives us all that we have, all that we need. The entire revealed word has come to us through the magisterium, 
We have the Bible, yes, but we wouldn't have the table of contents if it weren't for the church. The church gives us this. The church gives us all of the revelation of Christ. She places at our disposal all of the means of salvation. None of these things we would have were it not for Holy Mother Church. <clears throat> Indeed, to sum this up with a very beautiful passage from that encyclical, which I've quoted a few times now, by Mr. G. Corpus, there is nothing more glorious, nothing nobler, surely nothing more honorable can be imagined than belong, belonging to the one holy Catholic Apostolic and Roman Church, in which we become members of one body as venerable as it is unique. We are guided by one supreme head. We are filled with one divine spirit. We are nourished during our earthly exile by one doctrine and one heavenly bread until at last we enter into the one unending blessedness of heaven. This is truly the fulfillment of all that has been taught to us about Holy Mother Church from the very first prophecies in the Old Testament until today. Just last week we celebrated the anniversary of the consecration of St. Mary's Oratory on May 31st. Next year we'll be at 20 years. A very beautiful celebration, but it's very, always very struck by this part of the Mass for Church Consecration. The, the intro to the Mass, right? Terribilis es locus iste. That's, that terrible is this place, speaking about the church building, how fascinating when we consider that these words, these inspired words of sacred, sacred scripture, in fact, do not speak immediately about any building at all. They come from the book of Genesis, and it's Jacob who is speaking, saying, terrible is this place. Terrible meaning awe-inspiring, of course. Right? So terrible is this place, which we call the house of God and the gate of heaven. Well, what is he speaking about there? He's speaking about this episode that he's had. He just had this dream of the stairway to heaven, this dream of Jacob's ladder, this gate, this ladder leading up to heaven, This, which our Lord will tell us at the beginning of St. John's Gospel. He said that he is himself the fulfillment of this dream of Jacob. He is Jacob's ladder. After he has this dream of angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, upon this, upon this ladder, he will arise, and then the stone upon which he had been sleeping, been sleeping on a stone, it's very comfortable, and then you say, well, the, what does he do? Because he's had this vision, he decides to anoint the stone. Right? Of all the things, very, very shocking passage. Why would he do this? I don't know. He just decides to anoint the stone, but that's what he does. So this stone, this stone which will actually follow us through all the prophets of the Old Testament, he anoints it. It's exactly, it's in fact the very first time in the Hebrew Bible that we find the word Christ. Right? So the very first time we have this word to anoint, which is where the word Messiah comes from, and it's anointed. So he anoints the stone, and this stone will follow us all, be all through the Psalms. That, you know, in fact, we will see that this stone is the stone that the builders will reject, and that will become the cornerstone. It will become the cornerstone. So he's not building a church there in, already in Genesis, but that place, that place which then is called Bethel, it's then called, it's called the house of God, no, this won't be fulfilled until a certain God becomes, when God becomes man, in a place called Bethlehem, right? In the house of bread. And then when he becomes that, that is, he will become the head of this mystical body, which is the church. So that every time we have a, celebrate the consecration of a church, we recall that, yes, this is, that Christ and his church are always one. Christ and his sacraments are one. Christ and his sacred liturgy 
are always one. When the prophecies of the Old Testament speak of the coming of Christ, they speak of it also with the coming of the sacraments, also with the coming of the church, but they can never be separated. These are the reflections I wish to offer to you. I know not only have I been dealing with recording and sound systems, I'm now going to subject myself to one final thing which I really dislike, but as I open it up to Q&A. So just for, just for a few brief moments, if, if any, any questions here that you know, just in the interest of having, I hoped to provide a good introduction for, for what's coming. So if uh, are, there any, are there any questions on the, these brief thoughts that I've offered here? Mr. Benteen, please. The name of the encyclical that you mentioned, could you mention that again? So it's from, it's Pope Pius XII in 1943, and that's Mystici Corporis, so the mystical body, the mystical body. And I certainly encourage you very much to, to read that encyclical if you would never have, or to read it once again. It's very, very important for the spiritual life to reflect on how much we owe to Holy Mother Church and what a great love we should have for her and how this truly is a foundation of our spiritual life. So I, that's why I refer to you. That, that beautiful encyclical. Very good. Well, with that, I think what we do is, I think it's important just, this has already been a very, very long morning. I think why don't, why don't we, we'll close here with the prayer, we'll rise for a little bit, but, but I, I think it's, it doesn't hurt if we start a little bit uh, ahead of schedule, so I would think it would be, maybe it'd be good if you could all be back in, in your seats by, 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 I'd say, at 2 o'clock is probably good, right? That's good, and I, I'm grateful that we also gained a little time for uh, for His Eminence that way, so I appreciate that. So let's just rise here with the, the prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Most sacred heart of Jesus. Have mercy on us. Most sacred heart of Jesus. Have mercy on us. Most sacred heart of Jesus. Have mercy on us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I